1: clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery.
0: Today, Pete and I talk about what doesn't work. Quickly to recap our previous episode on subluxation and pain, we were reminded that moving the hand will engage the shoulder and the muscles that reduce subluxation. Pete reminded us that the proximal to distal arm recovery notion is a myth. We discussed statistics around shoulder subluxation. We also talked about the importance of proper arm positioning to prevent shoulder subluxation and soft tissue damage. Pete and I both shared our opinions yet again of overhead pulley use by stroke survivors we discussed ways to measure subluxation and then we discussed treatment strategies for supporting the shoulder, improving subluxation and reducing pain.
1: Stem cells are going to shine in the future. It doesn't there's no FDA approval. You can't get it anywhere in the United States. You can't get it anywhere in Europe. There are places that you can get it and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to two places that do it. Both of them are in China. I had a survivor, you know, when I wrote about this in my blog report that he went to China to get this done and it costs him about 16,000 US dollars to do it. And this, it makes it difficult. You know, the Chinese are doing it, but we're not doing it. You know, it's tough to standardize things unless nations across the world agree to the standardization. I have to say, in the reporting back that I got from the blog, it didn't seem to work that well. But, you know, you never know. So I think there's great hope for stem cells for people with brain injury and a lot of other neurological diseases, you know, amyotropic lateral sclerosis, MS. There's a bunch of stuff out there that could probably benefit from this stuff. It's mm-hmm. just not there yet.
0: Yeah. Well, from information that I read, it seems to play a role in decreasing inflammation, which is a big problem following brain injury.
1: I think stem cells are going to shine in the future, but people are freaked out. Stroke, my dear loved one went down. And then you go online and you go, stem cells, boom, we got to get them. Let's go to China. I'll do anything for my spouse, you know, whatever it takes. And this is part of the problem here. This is a very vulnerable population and it's a very vulnerable time in their life. If you've ever been a caregiver, you know, you're just like desperate for answers. And then somebody's coming by and saying, yeah, we got this thing. Oh, but by the way, it's not FDA approved, but they do it in China. You know, it's just a dangerous situation. So, I have a lot of news, but I wonder if we shouldn't just make this part of the show.
0: Yeah, you should.
1: Okay, let's do that. So, hey, Deb Batted Stella, how are you? (laughs) Hi,
0: Pete. I'm great. How are you?
1: We had some technical issues, didn't we?
0: Yeah, we did. And we worked through it.
1: And yeah, we're boomers, but we got it done. Actually, (laughs) you got it done. You saved the day. You figured out a workaround around around Zoom. So, that was good. So, um, what's new? Anything interesting?
0: There are a couple things on my end
1: oh there are anything that you want to discuss with the fine folks at home
0: well maybe that we met some cool ots who are interested in joining us for a guest appearance on the podcast and have you contacted them i have i heard back from one of them
1: <laughs> oh really? i forgot
0: to copy you on the email i'm sorry oh that's okay
1: so did they say yes
0: yeah Yes they did. Well, one of them said yes. So she's going to connect with the other and give us some date.
1: Okay, good. Yeah. So I got two bits of really huge news. Do you want to share that? Yeah, I do. So the first one is that Robert T. Sell, who I'm a big fan of, and the guy who runs the meta-analysis that I've talked about a lot on this show, and including in the research episode, Robert T. Sell is me, but kind of on steroids. He's an MD, it's University of Western Ontario, and he runs the evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation. And I reached out to a, a colleague of his, he wrote back and said, not only can I do it, but Robert T. wants to do it, and he's a physiatrist, he knows his stuff, and he's going to be an amazing asset to this to this podcast. More than anybody I know, he can give us a global sense of what works and what doesn't work with stroke recovery, although I'm going to hope to get him to also push towards other forms of acquired brain injury so we can get him to give us a thumbs up and thumbs down on treatment
0: options. And then- wait. Yeah. Before you go on, I think you're going to start with the next piece of good news. Is that what um, you would do or no? Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I just wanted to add one thing, which is that um, Marcus, the other guy that's going to be involved, will give us insight into the actual technical aspect of the EBRSR. I think that's what's going to happen. But by the way, we have to do a, a preliminary Zoom meeting with them so that, because they want to feel comfortable with what we want to talk about, et cetera, et cetera. But this guy is the guy who knows most about stroke recovery, I think, in the world, in the global sense. There's a lot of researchers who know a lot about a little. This guy knows a lot about a lot. I know a little about a lot. So it's me on steroids and I'm just like super excited and I've been talking about this guy and his website for years. So that's great news. So that's that's the first thing.
0: Yeah. I feel like um, I really don't know that much suddenly. I feel very small in the Rehab world and the stroke world for as much experience as I have, and i don't know it's just kind of it's a little unnerving and exciting at the same time
1: yeah, I know that feeling <laughs> <laughs> it's the feeling I have about just about everything all the time um,
0: yeah, well, that makes me feel a little better hearing you say that and i just it's funny because before I met you i didn't you know that saying where you don't know what you don't know yeah. it, it's like like I was think, just thinking about that today, and it's, it just explains to me or helps me understand the importance of stepping out of your comfort zone and doing something that scares you enough um, but is invigorating at the same time and shows you how much more is out there.
1: Yeah, the, the brain doesn't thrive in its comfort zone as long as you headed towards something healthy. Um, it can thrive outside its comfort zone. So that's good. Look at you growing. I know. Thanks, we're, Pete. We're growing at this advanced age. It's good to know. <laughs> it's and possible, people. A great neuroscientist, Michael Marcinich, makes a big deal about the fact that because of syn- increasing synaptic activity throughout your life, uh, you can grow your brain. So that's a, that's a really good thing to be able to do.
0: be stuck at 59 forever. It's great. Yeah, that's
1: right. Well, I'm going backwards now. I'm headed towards 40. (sighs) That's not going to happen. Okay. Um, And then the other thing is that Teresa Jones from UT Austin has also agreed to be on the show and that's going to be in late July. And she's somebody who's done a tremendous amount of work in animal models to figure out when you should dose intensity after stroke. And I had a slide forever in my PowerPoint deck and I presented it to you know thousands and thousands of therapists. And now I get to ask her, is this slide correct? Did I represent you well? It had her picture on there and everything else. And it said basically that if you do compensatory movement during the subacute phase, you can hurt future function of the affected side. So if you work on stuff with the stronger side, you will hurt the future function of the weaker side. Oh, so I, I can't get,
0: wait for that conversation.
1: I know. I get to ask her directly, yeah. hey, did I get this slide right? Or did I just rep- misrepresent you for years?
0: So that'll be good. So yeah, yeah, we're cooking. We are cooking. As long as we're cooking. I wanted to kind of just acknowledge our, our listeners for some things. I wanted, I wanted us to say thank you for the donations that we've gotten and let people know that we appreciate that. And just just talk about our followers. Did you know that we have 107 followers now? Really? We do. That's amazing. And so I don't really have an addiction with checking the statistics, but I looked at them earlier and then I thought, well, I should look at them right before the show starts. And we actually had more downloads within... Like a forty-five minute time frame, so we're up to two thousand eight hundred seventy-seven downloads, which I
1: think is really cool. That is cool, and you know, I'm glad it's resonating with people in some way. And apparently, it is, and that's great. I mean, we always had this idea that people would sit in their car and they'd be driving to work or to the bagel place or picking up their kids or whatever, and they could get a quick shot of, hey, you know, what's going on in rehab research for people with brain injury, and you know, it turns out, go figure. We thought we'd be end up talking. To each other and maybe my mom would listen to it occasionally but uh, go figure there's some people out there that are interested
0: yeah since you said that and since it seems like people are interested based on those numbers, I personally would like to know a little bit more about what they value so if if somebody has a few minutes and could take the time to email us and let us know what they like about the podcast what they would like more of I personally would find that helpful in planning and making sure that we um help meet those needs that people have. What do you think?
1: I think that's great. And they can email us at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. And you can ask us anything if you have a particular patient that you're struggling with, maybe we can dig a little bit and find the answer to that. What other kinds of questions can they ask us? Like they can mm-hmm. tell us what they want to hear, the kinds of stuff that's helpful to them. Yeah. If you're a person with brain injury, and you're just like, "What do I do next?" Uh, you know, I got a lot of emails like this because of my book. But you know, you could definitely do it, and then we can talk to you directly on the podcast, and we'll email you back and tell you which podcast our answer is in and where to find it within the podcast, so you don't have to listen to the whole thing. So, yeah, email us.
0: Yeah, they probably will want to listen to the whole thing.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's just assume that. I. I,
0: I, uh, I mean, let's just be truthful with all of this.
1: <laughs> I would definitely listen to every last aspect of the.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I know, I know that people are busy, and I know that it takes time to write an email, but it would be helpful. So, if if you have a few minutes, we'd appreciate your thoughts, your questions, and suggestions. I know. I remember it, just being in the clinic and going back to our to the office and talking about what we experienced that day. Those are the good those are the those are the real life scenarios where the questions come from. It's the stuff that you see that happens in real life that we don't always think about or it's not talked about in textbooks. So
1: yeah, I mean I used to write for advanced, remember advanced for OT, advanced for PT, advanced for speech have yeah. directors. And it was so weird because it used to be a, this big glossy magazine that OTs and PTs, we get sent to their house. And I used to base like a good quarter of my ta- uh, of my articles because I had a column in there. So I had to produce some every month. Um, my wife and her best friend, who's an occupational therapist, used to, at the end of the week, get together and they'd have a bottle of wine between them. And they would just rave about work. They worked at t- separate places, but they had worked together before. That's how they met. And this the, the, you know, what that flew in those conversations, I was just like, this is great stuff. And so, you know, if you're a therapist out there, one of the things that anybody could ask us is, Hey, there's this person I would really like you to interview. In fact, I had another professor at the school I work and ask, have you heard of this person? She texted me. I mean, it's like eight in the morning. You should, you should um, interview her. And it great, didn't...
0: people are listening early in the morning. She probably falls asleep listening to us. I know, I do. Not <laughs> don't put that in there.
1: <laughs> so, Michelle, if you're out there, I'm listening. I come up with some uh, some good good ideas for people that we can interview um, because. I think eventually we're gonna hit a place where we run out of stuff to talk about, but we always wanna expand stuff because as Deb said, we need more synaptic connections because we're headed for 40 and you should be too.
0: Exactly. Even though one of us looks much younger than that.
1: Yes. Well, you know, let's just compliment ourselves today. What a conceited
0: day. I know. What's would wrong you say with that? me?
1: Yeah, she's all tan, she looks great. Okay. So um, we're going to run out of time to talk about what we're actually supposed to talk
0: about. So um, what are we supposed to talk about today? I forgot. Today. No, you didn't. (laughs) Today, we're talking about what doesn't work in stroke rehab and recovery.
1: Wow. And we're going to try to expand it a little bit to all forms of brain injury as well. But um, what doesn't work? Wow.
0: So, yeah. I have a question before we get into the conversation because almost all of the research that I read compared interventions to conventional therapy, but none of them described what conventional therapy is.
1: Oh, what a great and easy question for for me that's been in a million meetings where we discussed exactly that question. So what you do often is you hire per diem therapists because you don't want to get the therapists that are in your lab because they'll screw things up and they'll get all fancy and then, you know, so you hire per diem therapists. In fact, if you want to get involved in clinical research and you are a therapist or a therapist assistant, as I am, usually the way you get in is by doing per diem work at a local lab. And if you're around a major university, there's usually something going on and they bring in per diem and then you you learn something that nobody else knows and then they got to hire you again and again and again. That's not the way I was hired. I was hired on contract for a couple years and then I made myself indispensable by basically not leaving. <laughs> so, um, but- but yeah, so we can get boots on the ground and we don't give them a lot of a lot of direction. We just simply say, do what you would do normally clinically with a patient that presents like this. Now we might say, look, I don't know, don't break out the ESTIM machine because that's going to be a confound in our study. Maybe we're testing ESTIM. We don't want you to add ESTIM to that. We might, there might be things that we won't, don't want them to do, but just the standard of care. And that's the way you handle that is you, you leave it up to the therapist, but you give them some basic parameters that they can't go
0: outside. So there's a do not touch closet.
1: Yeah. I would say, no, let me ask you this. In this closet that you're imagining, what are you not supposed to touch? I'm, this is
0: interesting. Well, I don't know. You just said the e-stem machine.
1: Okay. Yeah. So the Eastim machine, don't touch that. Although it's possible that Eastim could be on their line of things to do. It just sort of depends on what the treatment option is. Okay. Well, thanks. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's a that's a good question. What's the control? A lot of our studies would have two controls. One is nothing. We literally would say, okay, you're going to come in and you're going to be in one of three arms of this study. You're either going to be in the experimental group, the control one group, and they get standard of care therapy. So you you have two thirds of a chance of getting at least standard of care therapy, but there is another group and the other group doesn't get anything. And what you're going to do is you're going to come in, you're going to test. And every time we test everybody else, we're going to test you. We're going to ask you during that period, not to start a new exercise program. If you change your meds, let us know. If you change something dramatically, let us know because we don't want you going out and doing something that's like really good or really bad that makes the control group looks good or bad. So yeah, just keep it copacetic for that period of time. And then a lot of times we'll have crossover studies where somebody that wasn't in the treatment group that didn't get the new gizmo or whatever, will go from a control group and cross over into the treatment group. And so you and then the people that were in the treatment group go to the control group. So everybody gets everything and you get to see these dramatic shifts as they go from getting nothing to getting standard of care, to getting the treatment. And so we can you know analyze the data like that as well. Mm, yeah. It's you. a whole thing. Lots of meetings, lots of meetings up front because you want to make sure that the first day, usually the first participant, it's a little bumpy, but then after that, you get the flow of it.
0: It's like anything new that you start.
1: Yep. Yep. It definitely is. Yeah. It's a little bit different with clinical research because there's always people filtering in and out of your lab. There'll be a new neurologist or a neuroscientist or a PhD neuroscience student or somebody that wants to do a project. And then you hire new people for that project. So it's, it's a constant shifting set of characters, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. like anything new, you got you to gotta get it right. And usually the first you know, you've written about it, and then you got to try to get it right the first week or so, and then once you do that, you start to roll.
0: Okay, so there's like a a phase where you're kind of getting things set up and making sure that everything's the protocol is being followed or established the way you want it, and then you start. Well,
1: usually that first person, um, we may it's randomized, right? So. It, the computer spits, uh, spits out a random set of numbers and the first come, the we don't even see the numbers. I mean, it gets that crazy. It, we just push a button and a number comes up. If it's an odd number, they go to the control group. If it's an even number, they go to the experimental group. And then if you have another group, there's another numerical system for that. But a lot of times we'll take the first person and we'll say, you're going to be in the experimental group because that's the arm we need to figure out. That way you get the system for at least the experimental group, the, the control group of standard of care therapists will take care of that. You know, yeah. they have all the tools and they know what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to fill out. And we've trained them in that. Um, and then of course the people, if they're in a control group that doesn't get anything, they're even easier. You just do the testing.
0: So this is a silly question, but do you still, like, if you're the therapist working with the control group, do you still get to have fun in therapy?
1: No. There's no fun in oh. therapy. I Actually, I, I didn't even listen to the question. I just thought you set me up for such a great joke. No fun here. <laughs> There's research. There's beakers of blue vials of water.
0: <laughs>
1: um, so, w- wait, what was the question? Was was the question Do the therapists that do the standard of care stuff, do they learn anything and do they get to do anything <laughs> I new? I
0: just want, wanted to know, are you allowed to, to bring fun into the clinic.
1: Uh, if, are you allowed to put fun into function? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, I suppose we could screw it up and get some absolutely stellar therapist who just screws up our data by doing better than the, this amazing new intervention that we have. Yeah. Cool. So we try to standardize everything basically. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we should get it down to work. <laughs> what doesn't work? Yeah. Yeah. And so with this, I think one of the things I wanted to point out was I'm not comfortable in, saying that something doesn't work. Because even if it doesn't work for 100 people, it may work for one person. And the reason therapists, physiatrists, neurologists get paid the big bucks is that they can kind of tell what will work for that one person. And it's all about an eclectic approach. And it appears as if therapists that use an eclectic approach, that's the best approach. There is no one great therapy this is more dedicated to the options that you may want to reconsider that the research really doesn't support them. So we may seem like naysayers or gloom and doom because a lot of the stuff is stuff that isn't going to work or we don't think it works or the research doesn't think it works. But so, I think Deb, we should have an episode on what does work and and do that. Maybe we can dovetail that with the great uh, Robert T. Sell and, and do it then. Well,
0: I think we should too, because in in my research of looking for things that don't work, I found a whole bunch of things that do work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if you're looking at a meta-analysis of things that look at a lot of things, you're going to see stuff that works and stuff that doesn't work.
0: So since you brought this up, I just want to say, as an occupational therapist, as a person who has learned how to look, well, I learned how to do research, but you know, it's been a few years, but I know how to look at the research, and we talked about that in Our episode on what was that called? Do you remember the title of that? There's so many now, I just can't remember them all. Wait, what was the what was the episode about? Research.
1: Oh yeah, was it
0: called Re- research? No, wait, what it was it called? <laughs> <laughs> it had a good. It I had a try. name. Anyway, um, oh God,
1: think, not, oh, 40, not 40
0: yet. It's you're getting there. It's it's challenging to understand exactly what some of some of these articles are saying because it seems like they're talking out of both sides of their mouth which makes it very difficult to know what category does this go in? Does it go in the what doesn't work category or does it go in the what does work category? Do I try it? Don't I try it? You know, it's just kind of puzzling.
1: Um by the way that episode was called Research for Recovery.
0: Oh yeah, thanks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so those burning questions about what works, what doesn't work. That's Maybe we can make it a little bit clearer today, but we'll see. Maybe we'll fail. We'll see how this goes. So Yeah,
0: we're going to lose all of our listeners in this one. (laughs) They didn't know what they were talking about.
1: Yes. Well, that's kind of what research is all about. We never know what we're talking about. We're always trying to find something a little bit closer to the truth. So I see three categories here. Stuff that doesn't work and is harmful and expensive. I mean, stuff that could be dangerous, that's clear. And we can I have one thing that kind of falls into that category. Then there's stuff that doesn't work and it's not specifically harmful, we don't think at least, but it is expensive, so it's harmful to your pocketbook. And a lot of these stuff, a lot of of these stuffs, a lot of these things that don't work, you have to pay for out of pocket because insurance knows it doesn't work. And then there's another category, stuff that works, but maybe there's better options. And right off the bat, I want to talk about three things that don't work. One is a drug called NeuroAid, or at least I don't think it works. And again, if they come out with studies tomorrow that says it does work, then I'm all in. But right now, my reading of the research is it doesn't work. Stem cells, just not there yet, not FDA approved And then hyperbaric, which is this intense oxygenated environment that some claim reverses the stroke. So, And if it's okay with you, I'd like to start with stem cells. Sure. Because they show the most promise, but they also pose the biggest risk. So there was an article that came out in the popular media, and there's a lot of pressure on people that do research to... Say that hey, we've got something going on. Often, the university will put out a press release and say they had good outcomes showing uh, that this intervention with uh, people with brain injury uh, seemed to work. And the local news will get a hold of it, and the local news will come in and they'll say, We want to do, we want to interview you. And, you know, we get a person with brain injury there, and we get, you know, the director of the lab, or somebody will be interviewed and they'll talk about it. And by the the you know, you looked at the data and it kind of worked for some people and we're still trying to figure it out. But by the time it gets to the six o'clock news, it's a miracle cure. And you're like, wait, we didn't say that. They just chop it up and do all kinds of so there's always a lot of pressure on researchers to to make things look shiny and new. And there's a Dr. Gary Steinberg, he's a doctor doctor at Stanford, so he's a MD and a PhD. And he did a, a study called Clinical Outcomes of Transplanted, Modified Bone Marrow-Derived Mesochymal Stem Cells in Stroke. And I'll put a link for it in the show notes. And he went to the popular press and he made it sound like everything went great. And here's a couple of the quotes. We did not expect to see significant recovery. Please, researchers out there, do not use the term significant because significant research means that we're pretty sure that that thing that happened didn't happen by chance. We're 95%, you'll see a confidence level after they make the statement. We're 95% sure that all the variables were scraped away so that our treatment did that thing. It doesn't mean that it's significant in the common parlance use of the word. Significant to you or I meant there was a significant rise in the cost of broccoli. Well, that means it doubled. You know, it means it's big. Significant could be very small. It just means it didn't happen by chance. But anyway, so he goes on. We did not expect to see a significant recovery. We were quite startled by the remarkable recovery some patients showed. Okay. All right. And I'm going to go through all this and and what they showed. And it, it doesn't seem that big of a deal to me. And he went on. He talked about a patient. She was what we call one of our miracle patients. They only had 18 patients in this study. So how many miracles were there? This was one of the miracles. Apparently there were multiple miracles. This guy is, you know, he's touting his research. I get it. And then there was a comment, patients who were in wheelchairs are walking now. Okay. Um, Do you know the the cartoon Family Guy? It's a cartoon show.
0: Yeah, I was forced to know it. Well how did that happen? Well I have two sons. Oh okay. Yeah, I would I would not choose to watch something like that.
1: There is a great episode where Peter, aptly named Peter, he's a fat doofus doesn't know what the heck he's doing, um has a stroke. I don't know if you remember this, mm-hmm. but they they do a pretty good job of depicting stroke. First of all, he's not aphasic and he is a left hemi, so they got that right. And then, you know, he's facial droop and He's this character, kind of like Homer Simpson, who just does stuff, crazy stuff. And he gets in his car and he drives with one hand. He says, I don't feel good, but I'm just going to go. And then he doesn't know what to do. And he goes to the doctor. The doctor can't do anything. And so he goes to a clinic that says, Stun Cell Clinic, you know, like that, that exists. And he walks in and he's densely like floppy and flaccid on the left side. And he walks out and he, and he looks great. You know, and he comes in and he says, he says, I don't know why they don't use those stem cells. That stuff is great. Well, I'll tell you why they don't use them because it's just not ready.
0: We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and... Whether or not people donate are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that?
1: that's true um and we do have a venmo account do you remember the address
0: i do it's at neurons at neurons that's
1: pretty simple it is and it's in our title so if you want to help out look we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going and uh you know as deb said it's not the easiest thing in the world Yes, we giggle a lot. and Yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the...
0: The Brain Injury Association of America?
1: That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment.
0: It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it.
1: Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury, and we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons.
0: Yeah, and we have goals for the future of this podcast, and one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more and the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us Mm, that's true yeah
1: okay great thanks guys thanks so let me tell you a quick story i'm in san francisco a few years ago and uh it was it was like probably 60 people in the room. The room was way too small and I'm doing this talk and, you know, it's a six hour talk. So you get to know people a little bit. And there's these four people that are sitting right in the middle of the room and they're just, you know, it's like that, that song on Sesame street, which one of these doesn't belong here. Which one of these is not like the others. It's like that song. And there was these four people and they were in business attire. And I started, you know, asking the therapist there, you know, has anybody heard of brain derived neurotropic factor or you know, can anybody tell me a couple of the neurotransmitters? You know, just kind of getting the conversation going. And these guys nailed the answer again and again and again. And they would expand on the answer. I'm like, these guys do not belong here. Who the heck is at my talk? This is crazy. They're spies. They're coming to spy on my talk. Well we know it wasn't Dr. Taub's group. It wasn't, because that's in Birmingham, Alabama. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I started like poking at them during the talk, I'm like, Hey, you guys, are you, are you four together? You know, what's going on here? Uh, during one of the breaks they came up to me all four of them, they kind of surrounded me and they said, uh, we work at a company called San Bio, and we do stem cell research. And, um, and I'm like, you got to tell me about stem cells because I really don't understand this. Do you inject the stem cells anywhere? And then you hope they differentiate because stem cells are cells that haven't decided what they want to be when they grow up. And it, wherever you inject them, that's what they become. They yeah. differentiate into whatever their environment is. It's kind of cool. And I'm like, you know, how do you get them into the area around the area? You know, how do you get it into the brain? And they say, well, we drill a hole in the skull. We poke through the meninges, the leather-like covering over the brain. And then in a conical fashion, we hit, with this long needle, we hit three areas right in the area of the penumbra, which we've talked about. It's the peri-infarct area. It's the area just outside the area that's dead. These cells are coming back. And as they're coming back, they hit them with stem cells. And so I asked him, so when you go in there and you poke that needle in, do you kill neurons on the way in? And the guy's answer was classic. He goes, yeah, probably a few. I was like, wow. And I knew what his next question was. He said, the reason we're here is that we're having trouble recruiting people for this study. And I thought, yeah, because there's this thing in clinical research, it's called informed consent. Yeah. You know what HIPAA is? Yeah. It's like HIPAA on steroids. So we've had a long history as human beings of doing really torturous experiments on each other. And, you know, the ancients did all kinds of weird stuff. But if you think about the Nazi experiments, and the Nazis experimented, on all kinds of people, not just Jews in concentration camps, but anybody they considered undesirable for whatever freaked out reason that they had. So after that, and and if you think that the United States was above all this, there was the very famous Tuskegee experiments. African-American men who had syphilis and came to doctors for treatment were not given penicillin. We had a treatment for it. They didn't give it to them. They wanted to see the natural course of the disease. And so what they did was they didn't treat them and they didn't tell anybody. And so this went on and this people died of the disease. And then um, ultimately, um, that ended in like 1973 or something. It was crazy. Now, when you're in clinical research, you're tested on what are the laws with regard to protecting human participants and one of the biggest laws is something called informed consent. And informed consent means that you have to inform the participant at every turn exactly what's going on in the study. If there's any problems in the study, you got to tell them immediately. If you see any problems with them, you've got to tell them immediately. They always have the opportunity to walk away from the study because there were studies where people would be kept in by giving them
0: money or something, and they'd be put in dangerous situations. So- so even before that, though, a study has to be approved by the Ethics Committee, the IRB, the, the in, our institutional internal. Review Board, thank yeah. you
1: very much. And the Institutional Review Board has people from clergy, has a mix of women, men, all kinds of people, doctors, all kinds of people that are there to see if it's ethical in every possible way. So it goes through this long review process. And yeah, so you're absolutely right about that. And that's part of it where they they decided that they were going to come up with all these laws that everybody had to adhere to when they did research on human participants.
0: So these guys were having a hard time getting people to volunteer to receive some stem cells.
1: Yeah. In informed consent, one of the things they had to do was describe to them what was going to happen. And I'm pretty sure people left. They would have had to either show them the needle, and it's a long needle because it has to get sometimes very deep in the brain. And they would have had to describe it or show them a picture of the needle. And I think a lot of people couldn't do it, just couldn't go through that well, level I of-
0: I don't think I'd want a hole drilled in my head unnecessarily. Yeah. So the brain doesn't
1: feel anything, but the skull does. Yeah. And it's very uncomfortable. You're you're locked in because they don't want you to move. The, they're looking at the MRI data. They know where they want to hit. So you're locked in with a, you're kind of caged in. Yeah. And they got to put it in there. Now, once you get into the brain, the brain doesn't feel anything. It's sort of ironic. It's the seed of sensation, but doesn't really feel anything. They may have a childhood memory. They may smell a banana, but they don't have any feeling of pain as it goes through there.
0: So it seems like it would make sense to use stem cells with a person who has to have brain surgery anyway. Like if you're going to use it, use it while you're in there,
1: interesting. um I would think that brain surgery, irrespective of stem cells being put in there, would want to be done separately because you know there's that so doesn't much. sound
0: very practical Pete
1: yeah, yeah' it's, uh, it would be great if you could just go in and maybe one day we'll have a Star Trek kind of thing, and Dr. Bones will come out and just shoot you up with something magical, but that hasn't happened yet. but stem cells was sort of the magic bullet, so yeah, so back to Dr. Steinberg and the study is the study that um, that everybody points to as, hey, this is the one that it seemed to work. So there were three problems with the study. First of all, there was no control group. And you always want a control group of people who got nothing, at least, at least do that. Get nothing. Why? Because one of the outcome measures, their primary movement outcome measure, was the Fugelmeyer. We've discussed this before. It's actually the Brunstrom Fugelmeyer, The great singer Brunstrom came up with it, and that was the primary outcome measure. There's a tremendous amount of pressure on the person that's the rater, and I was the rater in a lot of studies. I was doing the testing. I was doing the testing, and there's pressure because you know the whole study sort of depends on your data, and if you know that everybody was in the experimental group, there's this. Pressure to to push up the scores a little bit. Yeah, everybody's getting better. And so the way we handle it is by having a control group. Now, it's very hard in rehab to double blind placebo control it, right? Because if you're doing constraint induced therapy, the person either is going to have a mitt on their hand or they're not, right? And they're going to know whether they had it. Often in these rehab protocols, you can't blind the person with brain injury, but you can always blind the therapist. How? you take off the mitt. And with stem cells, there would be an injury on the head, right? It's where they drilled the hole. Now you could put a bandaid over everybody's head in the control group, or you could just have them wear a hat. Just put a hat, have a control group and put a hat on them and you're done. And that way the therapist that's doing the outcome measures, they just have to get the right score. So I didn't understand that. And you know, they had meetings for that. I don't know why they didn't do that. Second of all, they had a lot of people screened, but very few qualified. So they it had a, the feel of a cherry picking of patients. And they do admit this in the study limitations. Uh, they had the patient screening process was highly selective with only 4.7% of all screened patients enrolled in the trial. Did
0: so they say okay. what the selection criteria was? That is in the trial.
1: We will put the trial. It's the full article. And anybody who's curious in that, yes, there were quite a few, um, but not unusual for a, a study for stroke survivors, very similar to our studies for constraint-induced therapy or anything else, but there were quite a few. Okay. And for me, the data for the Fugelmeyer was incredibly underwhelming. We could have gotten more sending them to dead bad at Stella. They could have gotten just as much of a bump. So I was not impressed by that data. And again, all of this is going to be in the article if you want to read it. So yeah, everybody got the treatment, not great, no control. Everyone doing the data collection is going to be, you know, under a lot of pressure. So that was the study. And, you know, everybody said, hey, you know, this looks really great, but how great was it? It was 18 participants. Here was the thing that freaked me out though. There were a ton of adverse events. So there's a couple of different kinds of adverse events. One is eh, you know, it wasn't a big deal. And then there's adverse events that are very big deals that require medical attention. I don't think there was one person that didn't have some sort of adverse event. Such as Okay, so all of the patients, the n, the number of patients in the study were was 18. All of them experienced at least one treatment Related adverse event. Six patients experienced six serious treatment adverse events. That's a lot. What is that? A third of 18 had a serious event. Most of them appeared to be related to the surgical procedure.
0: Well, that makes sense.
1: Um, The adverse events, the serious ones, resolved with treatment without sequelae. So there was nothing that came off of that. Yeah. So it had to do with the surgery itself. And you know that's something to think about when you're having that big of an impact in terms of adverse events. That's, that's kind of a tough one.
0: Yeah. Surgery is something important to consider always because anytime you do something invasive, you open the body up to negative events, infection being one of them.
1: Absolutely. As you pointed out, nobody likes a hole in their head. So this is where it gets dangerous though. And this is why stem cells is unique it doesn't, there's no FDA approval. You can't get it anywhere in the United States. You can't get it anywhere in Europe. Um, There are places that you can get it. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to two places that do it. Both of them are in China and one's in Beijing and they will do it. I had a survivor, you know, when I wrote about this in my blog Report that he went to China to get this done, and it cost him about 16,000 US dollars to do it. And this, it makes it difficult. You know, the Chinese are doing it, but we're not doing it. You know, it, it's tough to standardize things unless nations across the world agree to the standardization. I have to say, in the reporting back that I got from the blog, it didn't seem to work that well. But, you know, you never know. So I think there's great hope for stem cells. For people with brain injury and a lot of other neurological diseases, you know, amyotropic lateral sclerosis, brain injury, MS. There's a bunch of stuff out there that could probably benefit from this stuff. It's mm-hmm. just not there yet.
0: Yeah. Well, from information that I read, it seems to play a role in decreasing inflammation, which is a big problem following a brain injury. So it would be nice if they can figure out a way for it to work.
1: Yeah, it would be, and they'll 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 get it. They mm-hmm. just haven't got it yet, and I, yeah. I don't think it's responsible for researchers to say, "Hey, we had a miracle patient," because people look. Hippocrates, the father of medicine, named. Stroke, TIA, aphasia. He wrote about it. You know, the ancients were freaked out about stroke. The word he had was plesso. It meant struck by the hand of God. I think it was Zeus that threw out lightning bolts. You have this disease where there's no precipitating pain. You don't see any bleeding. It's not like consumption or cancer or something where you get more pain. It's growing and people get sick. Or It's just a boom and they're down. It must have freaked them right out. It seemed like a strike from a hand of God. The Middle English word was strachen. And again, it was it is Str capital A with like an umlaut on top, K-E and Strachen, the Middle English, like Germanic version. And again, it meant struck. And then there was another word, apoplexy, that you still hear in old Andy Griffith episodes. It's the old word for stroke. People are freaked out by a brain injury but especially a stroke. And brain injury, you can see there was a car accident. Stroke, my dear loved one went down. And then you go online and you go, stem cells, boom, we got to get them. Let's go to China. I'll do anything for my spouse, you know, whatever it takes. And this is part of the problem here with a lot of these miracle cures. And again, I think stem cells are going to shine in the future. But there's this sort of like, this is a very vulnerable population. And it's a very vulnerable time in their life. If you've ever been a caregiver, you know, you're just like desperate for answers. And then somebody's coming by and saying, yeah, we got this thing. Oh, but by the way, it's not FDA approved, but they do it in China. You know, it's just a dangerous situation.
0: Yeah. So just to continue on this conversation a little bit, I have an article here that says that they're looking to the future and finding other ways besides drilling a hole. So maybe catheterization or some intrathecal types of um, ways to implant the stem cells. And then I also read that complications, one of the complications of stem cells can be brain tumors. So tumors form. So that's another important consideration while people are learning about this. So they need to figure out a way to implant stem cells without creating another problem
1: yeah that would be good yeah although the catheterization that's really smart because Mm -hmm. you know the mercy retriever and these things you know you can get things through arteries in the leg and bring them right up to the brain what if you could go in through an artery in order to inject those stem cells that'd be great
0: yeah it would be a lot less invasive Hey Pete, you know what's great about podcasts?
1: Well, a lot of things, you have a world of different options, you can fast forward through stuff you don't like, and it's all on your phone so you can listen to it while you're driving or exercising or doing chores around the house.
0: Well, that stuff is pretty cool, but that's not the most important thing. Wait, what do you think is the most important thing? That when you listen to the radio, all you get are ads. Even NPR shuts down for it seems like weeks to beg for money.
1: Uh, Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, no.
0: Uh Uh-oh what?
1: We're about to do the same thing. No you know how much work we put into this the research the endless technology hoops that we have to jump through the websites the equipment the editing we just need a little help well how can people help through venmo we have a venmo account and any little bit will help our venmo address is at neurons because of course it is
0: at neurons how much do you think people should give about a million dollars come on okay like five hundred dollars are you serious $50? $50? Let's just put it this way, every little bit helps.
1: If you want to support Noggins and Neurons' effort to simplify the best of neuroscience and rehab science for brain injury recovery, then by $1 million to Add Neurons! And here's some good news. 20% of everything we get will go to the Brain Injury Association of America, which helps individuals who've had a brain injury, family caregivers, and the professionals who help create a better future through medical research and treatment. I want to talk about the EBRSR, So this is the Evidence-Based Review of Stroke Rehabilitation. We should probably put that in the, in the show notes. We've talked about it several times now. What it says may not work. Here's the kind of terms they use. Can. It can work. Honestly, the only thing that I see on there that can work is mirror therapy. There's not much else. So the rest of it is, and I'm going to ask Robert T. Sell about this when he comes on our show. What does may mean? If this may work. It may not. And then mixed. There's mixed signals about whether it works or not. So what I did is I went through the EBRSR and I picked out the things for the upper extremity and the lower extremity later. We'll do that later. That was may not. So I, I, I use that sort of as the cutoff, maybe a couple are mixed, but may not. So the first one is that the Bobath concept approaches may not be beneficial for upper limb rehabilitation following stroke. We've talked about NDT here before. Uh, Berta Bobath was somebody who developed neurodevelopmental treatment. It doesn't do well in clinical research, but we also talked about n- maybe there's some daylight there for handling techniques that get people in a good position body position. I don't want to say something doesn't work. There are therapists who absolutely swear by it. It just doesn't do well in clinical research. And it's unfortunate that there's the Bobath Center in England. There's also the NDTA here in the States that they don't put some serious money behind doing some serious research. They have these tiny grants where they say, and you can find it on their website, we will give you a grant money if you help prove that it works Well, we don't want that. We want, you know, real research and they'll give them $5,000. $5,000 won't even pay for fMRI for a pre-post test because you pay for the fMRI and then the person who, who's usually an MD-PhD that needs to read what the data actually means. So until they do that work, I, you know, I just can't get behind it. What do you think about that?
0: I agree. And in all of the research that I found comparing an intervention with NDT, NDT didn't produce the best results. The other intervention, whatever it was, always performed better. But I do agree with you that some of the techniques are effective and beneficial, like the handling techniques, um, you know, and we can use our clinical reasoning to justify some of this. If you're yeah. using key points of control to provide proprioceptive input as well, and, you know, into a limb. Or a joint, you can document that, and you can you can add that to your treatment repertoire.
1: Absolutely. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know. Because I did a lot of talks, I would come across therapists that learned directly from Berta Bobath, and they said she was weird. She would walk into a room, and they'd get a stroke survivor. And she would have them up moving around and they were moving all around and all the stuff that they couldn't get this stroke survivor to do and she was doing. And I can see how that cult of personality is is really still driving NDT today. The question to me was always like, what happened the next day? It doesn't yeah. matter what you do now. There's all this stuff you can do with reflexes. What happens the next day? And this is why Berta Bobath was not a researcher. You know, Singe Brunstrom was. And, you know, I should point out that the EBRSR does say about the Brunstrom approach that, and we're, this is an episode about what doesn't work, but I just picked this out because it was right next to the Bobath stuff. Brunstrom movement therapy may be more beneficial than motor relearning programs for upper limb function. I so, saw that too. Yeah. So you you have, you know, it's not what you can do right now. That, that may be important as you point out to position them To then drive neuroplastic change, but now, of course, NDT wants to also say, "Well, we do drive neuroplastic change." Well, that's what you got to prove. You got to do the studies to prove that. You can't just glom onto you know well-run clinical trials in neuroscience and say, "Well, we're that too," because then we can just call it neuro rehab and not try to sell it as NDT. Anyway, let's move on.
0: No, I don't want to because (laughs) I I want to say something.
1: I think Uh, that's what I want to say. What? I think you're great. This is why it's oh, hey. great to work with you. Go. What do you? Thank get?
0: you. Um, so, as an occupational therapist, one of the one of the most important parts of the relationship that we have is the therapeutic relationship that we have with our clients, right? And building that rapport. And I, um, I am not NDT certified, and I'm okay with that. And I have had clients say things to me over the years about how with, within the NDT approach, whoever was working with them, they would get so frustrated because their movement pattern wasn't normal and they couldn't make it be normal. And it, it made some people feel badly about it. And it, it was discouraging to them. In the clinic- and so I do think it's something important to talk about because like you've said many times, it's the quality of the movement isn't important. It's the fact that they're actually moving and using a limb. And here you have, that seems kind of contradictory to what the research says, not kind of, it. it is contradictory to what the research says. So there's two points that I brought up, insisting on as close to normal as possible in a movement pattern and then frustrating a patient or client.
1: So is that your rationale for advocating
0: for handling techniques or is it, what is that? I think that's beyond handling techniques. I mean, when I think of handling techniques, I really think about the key points of control. Um, I, I mean, it's been a long time since I've attended an NDT in-service, Um, I'm just speaking to, you know, the insistence on move your, move your limb this way, you know, and then, I mean, they're using the therapist does use their hands and their body to facilitate a position, but if a client can't, if they can't make their leg just do a normal flow of movement as they're walking, um, you know, and the therapist might not mean to be sounding very harsh, but a person may perceive it that way. Am I making any sense at all? I'm I'm still not super sure
1: what your point is. If somebody's My not, point- if the leg isn't moving correctly, should there be handling techniques or should there not be? Should you let them struggle through it or what do you think?
0: Well, based on everything that we've talked about so far, what the research says that we should be letting them move the way that they move. And I'm I'm just saying that it seems to me that the people who are NDT certified tend to have sort of an insistence of like constant feedback, you know, make your limb do this, let's try to get it that way. You and they'll use their body to try to get the limb to go in that move that motion that they want, but when the limb doesn't, it it's hard on a patient who's, they're already working so hard in therapy. Who knows? Maybe their emotions are messed up from the stroke because sometimes people, their emotional state changes following a stroke. But I've had people actually say things to me like, I I feel like I can't please my therapist because I can't make my limb move the way they want it to.
1: Yeah. Don't make the perfect the enemy of the good.
0: Yeah. So, I guess what I'm saying is that there are aspects of NDT that are contradictory to the research.
1: Yeah, because so far as we can tell, the brain takes a long time to adapt. And if you expect for the outcome to be immediate, you could end up turning off the patient, as you say, but you could do a little bit of harm because… That's not what they're going for. They're just trying to walk by hook or by crook. Get that done first, yes. then use the natural repetitive practice that's involved with walking. <laughs> but yeah, so you should yeah. be able to 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 let them get better. Give them a chance to get better. And the brain's going to do it on its own time. You can't rush that stuff. And look, it does help in the clinic to be able to put your hands on somebody and move them because there's a lot of pressure the patient wants you to do something you want to do something a lot of therapists claim they are hands-on i'm very hands-on um and then you know you got people the caregivers there and they're going why don't you do, why isn't they doing so you know what are you doing and so at least you can put hand, hands on somebody and do something but that's just not the way the nervous system learns
0: yes yeah and the therapeutic relationship is important
1: i see where you're going with this
0: yeah it took me a while but yeah i well i i did what my habit is to do is always talk about more than one point when I have a topic.
1: That's to a sign about. of true intelligence, I'm sure.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, one can hope.
1: Yeah. You, you went into the, the relationship and how expecting too much out of the patient may be disconcerting to them and,
0: yes. and um,
1: disenfranchising and yeah. early.
0: Yeah. Yes. And we want to be careful about that. I guess I said all of that to say we want to use our clinical skills in a way that doesn't cause harm
1: yeah absolutely so deb i think i got a lot more to do on this topic and we're coming up on an hour now i'm thinking this may be two episodes that we okay. might be able to do back to back how do you feel about that
0: i think that's a good idea
1: okay stay D- tuned for the second half of what doesn't work
0: thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.